Hello and welcome to another in our series of expert podcasts in UNESCO's Inclusive Policy Lab. You may have caught some of the earlier episodes in this series, which have been looking from various angles with the competence of uh, a range of great experts uh, with different kinds of uh, approaches on the post-COVID reset, as the phrase goes. The point being, of course, that the idea of a reset implies a more equitable and inclusive path than the one that was followed up to December 2019, using uh, the information that pandemic management has given us about what the vulnerabilities and inequities and inequalities and unsustainabilities within our societies are. As always, we'll try to have a conversation that deals both with concrete policy measures that our experts have seen as being conducive to such an equitable recovery, um, including obviously things that have actually been tested in the real world in 2020, and secondly, the data and the knowledge that we need, or perhaps that we already have, that could inform policy shifts. Our expert today is Anders Fremstedt. Hi, Anders. Hello. Anders is an assistant professor in the economics department at Colorado State University. His research focuses on the politi political economy of the environment, especially the sharing economy and the climate crisis. Anders has written on the distributional impact of carbon pricing policies, carbon dividends, and the connections between these and universal basic income. And these are the areas of Anders' expertise that I'd like to put at the core of our discussion today. So, Anders, thank you again for agreeing to be a guest on the Inclusive Policy Lab podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, first of all, this question of carbon taxes and carbon dividends, uh, which indeed a previous podcast, which I moderated a few weeks ago, uh, touched upon from a, from a somewhat different perspective. What's in, really interesting about it, of course, is the fact that it connects the question of a green transition, so the sustainability path post-COVID, with the question of social justice, the inclusiveness of the post-COVID path. So I'm really very interested uh, to hear more about your ideas on how various ways of taxing carbon or drawing on um, some approach to the externalities of uh, carbon in the global economy uh, could provide a basis for a more equitable agenda for post-COVID uh, recovery. What, what's your, as a first question, what's your view in general terms of carbon taxes, and in particular, something that's often raised in public discussion in, in this regards, there are possible regressive aspects. Is carbon taxation just basically a middle-class fantasy that will end up hurting the poor, to put it in the kinds of polemical terms that one finds on social media? What's your view on that? Well, like most economists, I support carbon pricing. I think it's a good idea, but we do need to be very conscious of its regressive nature in a country, in most developed countries, certainly the United States. Um, I think it's helpful to think about specific tax. So I'd like to consider a tax that I've thought about a lot, a tax of $230 per ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, that's the rate that we would need worldwide today, according to William Nordhaus's model, to prevent warming of more than two and a half degrees Celsius. So it's an ambitious, ambitious price, but still probably inadequate if you think we want to limit global warming to two degrees Celsius or one and a half degrees Celsius. Still, I think it provides a sort of useful metric. 
So I know most about the United States. In the United States, a tax of that magnitude would increase the cost of gasoline um, or petrol or, um, by, by $2.30 a gallon, roughly, or it would increase its cost by about 80% to roughly European levels. It would increase the cost of electricity by about 50%, the cost of airfare by about 25%. Um, and then other goods would have relatively little impact on. Grocery costs would go up by about 10%. You know, yoga classes might get 5% more expensive and so on. So these price increases are going to disproportionately impact low-income people. And this is a somewhat tricky thing to wrap one's head around, right? Um, Rich people in the United States have much larger carbon footprints than poor people. Uh, according to my analysis with Mark Paul, um, people in the richest income decile pollute about five times as much as those in the poorest income decile. Um, but while that's the case, rich people still spend a smaller share of their income on really carbon intensive goods like gasoline and electricity, right? Increasing the cost of gasoline and electricity disproportionately burdens people who spend a, a larger fraction of their income on income electricity. Um, so Mark Paul and I estimate that the effective tax rate would be about 50% higher for people in the poorest decile in the United States compared to people in the richest decile. So it's it's not a hugely regressive tax, but it is a regressive tax. And, and I think that's been one of the, the biggest reasons that it's been hard to sort of um, build mass support for this sort of policy, right? Um, Everyday people are very sensitive to the prices of, of energy products, and they don't want to see those go up. Um, it feels it feels and is, to some degree, just unfair. Yeah, that certainly speaks to anyone living in France, where, as you, as you probably know, the question of fuel taxation um, in late 2018 produced a very major social upheaval that was largely driven by this perception that... Uh, uh, people who uh, couldn't afford to do without a car were being punished for that, whereas rich urbanites who didn't even need a car were getting a free ride. And um, you can always argue that it's more complex than that, but that was certainly how it was politically framed and successfully enough for the French government in that case to back down. And there have been similar examples in, in many other countries, including developing countries, where the question of um, fuel prices is often extremely uh, socially sensitive. Uh, one obvious, I, I know you have um, technical solutions um, that are more ambitious, uh, better constructed that we'll come to in a moment. But one obvious response to that is, can't you make it both fiscally neutral and um, neutral in terms of progressive versus regressive by offsetting the carbon tax against other existing taxes that for whatever reason, it might be desirable to reduce anyway? Uh, in other words, not adding tax, but shifting the burden of tax towards a recognized important externality. Of course, it depends what tax system you have. Where you have high VAT levels, as in Europe, it's easier to reduce VAT to compensate for a carbon tax than when you don't have high VAT levels. Uh, but before we get into carbon dividend, which we'll discuss in a moment, what are your thoughts on the, on the mechanics of neutrality or at least compensation within um, standard tax tools? Yeah, I mean, that has been the approach that, at least until recently, I think, was the dominant approach among economists, right? That we should we should tax this negative externality and use that revenue to cut other, um, quote unquote, distortionary taxes. 
in general, the proposals I see, um, I mean, the United States doesn't have a VAT and so on to cut. So, I mean, most of the taxes that have actually been, we've really discussed cutting, have tended to be fairly progressive taxes. So replacing, of course, a even slightly progressive tax with a regressive tax is not going to um, win, I think, over a lot of people in the, in the lower and, and middle class of the United States. Um, but in countries where you have a VAT, I think that might be that might be a more reasonable um, sort of possibility. I still think it's unlikely to be as progressive as, as, for example, lump sum payments in the form of a carbon dividend. Okay, so I'd like to hear more about that. How, how would you see carbon dividends working uh, both to um, ensure the environmental benefits of the scheme and correct its potentially uh, regressive features? What's, what's the big idea first and then what are the mechanics? How would this actually be implemented? Yeah, well, I, I would stress first sort of a strong ethical case for carbon dividends. So the whole point of pricing carbon dioxide is that we want to internalize the cost that we're all imposing on, on current and future generations from our carbon emissions. Economic theory suggests that having all firms and households pay the same price for the use of our, our atmosphere, the carbon sink, um, is the most cost-effective way for us to reduce our use of that sink, right? It's the most cost-effective way for us to reduce emissions to any given level. Um, also, though, since we own the atmosphere in common, right, none of us was born with a greater claim to the atmosphere than anyone else, justice sort of demands that the revenue created by, by pricing the use of this shared asset um, be shared equally with everyone. So I think, first, there's just sort of a strong ethical case for, for thinking about the problem in this way. If we return to my example of a, a tax of $230 per ton, Right. If we tax carbon at that level, increasing gasoline prices by 80% and electricity by 50% and so on, that would raise enough revenue for us to provide every man, woman, and child in this country a dividend of about $2,200 per year or about $180 per month. Since the rich have much larger carbon footprints, right, they're going to end up paying more in taxes. And of course, these are all indirect payments. You're not going to get the carbon tax in your tax bill at the end of the year. Um, we'll tax everything at the, at the mouth of the mine and at the, at the wellhead and so on. But those price increases mean that ultimately consumers are going to bear the brunt um, of the cost of this policy. So um, the rich are going to end up right, paying more of those price increases than the poor. Uh, Mark Paul and I estimate that if you took all the revenue raised by a carbon tax and gave it back to people in equal lump sum payments, about 62% of Americans would actually see their purchasing power increase. They would actually be able to buy more things after the policy than before. Um, and that includes 84% of people that are in the bottom half of the income distribution. So it overwhelmingly benefits sort of people who are already spending less money, burning less fossil fuels, and so on. And I think that could make this sort of, you know, this sort of policy politically, politically tractable. So just to give you a sense of the magnitude, for the average person in the poorest decile, right, that person would receive a dividend of $2,200 per person. Right? A family of, uh, of five would see you know, over, over $10,000, over $12,000. Um, they would see their costs increase per person by about $800. And so per person, they would have a net benefit on average of $1,400 a year. They would be that much better off. 
Meanwhile, someone in the richest decile would also receive the same dividend of $2,200, but their costs would increase on average by about $4,700. So they're net losers under the policy, and they would see their purchasing power decline by about $2,500. So the intuition is, as long, right, even if you have a somewhat rest of tax, if you take that money and rebate it to people in equal payments, you can create, you can generate a sort of progressive, progressive transfers that, that help more people than they hurt, um, precisely because the well-to-do are disproportionately contributing to the system. They're the ones who own the biggest cars, um, take the most international flights, and, and, and live in the biggest homes, right? So, of course, they are the ones that are contributing disproportionately to our climate crisis. Okay, thanks. Those those figures um, are are very striking, um, and of course, I was initially going to object that the figure sounded very low, but then you made clear it was per person, not per household. So of course, it uh, it it adds up very differently. Um, I know you're talking here about the U.S., and that's where you did the detailed calculations. Are you aware of um, calculations that, in say, the very different environment of Europe, which is high, has a much higher base of energy costs, much higher existing energy taxes and often different uh, tax and uh, um, social provision systems. Um, is the picture potentially very different depending on the baseline, or do you find the same kind of general picture that, to put it very simply, about two-thirds of people are net beneficiaries, about one-third uh, are net losers, and the one-third of net losers are in the highest uh, bands of the income distribution? Again, so summarizing very crudely what you said, does, does that hold? in different kinds of energy and tax systems? So the, the, I think the conversation in Europe is somewhat complicated by the fact that a bunch of the fuel taxes that Europeans pay are, are sort of, they're, they're roughly actually the magnitude that I'm talking about implementing this carbon tax in the United States. So there's a lot of debate in, in Europe um, about when you pass a carbon tax, about whether or not you can get rid of other sorts of taxes, right, on, on fuel and so on. So I think that complicates it a bit. But in general, the structure of the problem is similar, where, I mean, well-off Europeans also have larger homes and, and drive cars and, and take more flights and so on. And so the basic outcome is still, is, is still more or less the same. Um, it gets a little bit, I think it gets a little bit more different when we move to developing countries of the global south that we might come to later. But the basic structure in Europe is similar, is similar to the United States. Um, the, I think, you know, when we say, when I say 62% of people would benefit from the policy, you have to remember there's, very, there's a lot of people there that are just barely benefiting and, on the other hand, just barely losing from the policy. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't take, you know, that estimate too, too seriously. It's obviously very sensitive to different assumptions and so on. Um, but... But studies in Europe do find you know, relatively relatively similar results with that respect, in that respect. Yeah, thanks. That's a good point. I suspect it's a politically important figure, though, because at some point, if this is to be done, someone basically needs to run, win an election running on a platform to do it. And no, precisely. to say two-thirds of you are going to gain from this is a powerful statement uh, as against for most of you, it won't matter, but some of you might gain and so on. It's the clarity of political discourse is sometimes important. Um, we'll come on in a moment to the connection with the idea of a universal basic income, which, which is obviously very compatible in spirit. But before that, um, another possible objection comes to mind. 
which is common to all taxes on bad things. If the carbon tax is designed, among other things, to promote structural change in the energy system towards greater efficiency, then the better it works, the more it will tend to erode the tax base. Does this introduce any kind of um, structural instability into the system? See, not environmentally, because of course, in those terms, reducing the tax base is good news, but in terms of the uh, social benefits associated with it. No, absolutely. Um, any revenue we get from from taxing carbon, we should see is I mean, if we're going, if we actually succeed in in saving the planet and addressing this crisis, of course that revenue is going to disappear to zero over the next two three decades. Um, so, absolutely, I think we should we should see these revenues as sort of something we can use temporarily as we transition to a, a zero carbon economy, but. You're absolutely correct that it's it's unlike a VAT or some other um, revenue source. It's not something we can rely on forever. Um, although for the next decade, decade and a half or so, we might we might be raising substantial amounts of money. And I think that's that's one of the most important things, right? Economists are often focused on we just need to get the marginal prices, the marginal costs sort of correct, so people allocate resources efficiently. But we're talking about huge section of the economy that's going to be distributed differently with one of these policies. And so really, I think what I and other sort of proponents of carbon dividends are looking at is not just about the efficiency, but also what we do with that money, right? A, a tax of $230 per ton raises roughly a trillion dollars of revenue in the United States. And, and that's a lot of money. So a lot of the political debate is necessarily about what you do with a trillion dollars as opposed to simply, you know, did you get the price right or are, are people um, abating emissions efficiently and so on? Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree. I mean, I was partly devil's advocate saying what I said, that the question of creating a viable um, medium term path to transition is really the horizon we should be talking about. The 30, 40 years down the line is in any case beyond the horizon of uh, technological innovation. All sorts of things could happen in, in, in that time. But the next 10, 15 years within the current infrastructure cycle is the time when leverage needs to be found for um, a path change to reduce the path dependency we, uh, uh, we currently have. So finally, um, I suppose the other uh, possible, it's not an objection, but it's a different way of thinking about it. Um, the option of taking the revenue from the carbon tax and um, distributing it to people in a certain way, a, a radically egalitarian way in this case, uh, could be contrasted with a different approach, uh, which is which tends to come naturally, I think, to many people in Europe, certainly, which is use the revenue as a lever to drive technological change, which will produce better energy systems. So, for instance, use carbon tax revenue to subsidize renewable energy, for instance, maybe to subsidize research into a new generation of nuclear power, or, or whatever may be your preferred option. Um, do, do you have arguments from the economic perspective that would go in the direction of saying that might not be the best way of using the revenue compared to the alternative which you're proposing? Or is this more a political choice about what kind of transition we want? I think it is largely a political choice, right? Of course, government is necessary um, in in creating a bunch of the new technologies that we're going to need to address this crisis. I think the question is, 
you know, we we should be funding that research and innovation regardless. I think the question is, do we need do we need revenue from the carbon tax to fund it? And I think my my main objection to the idea. I mean, once you have a trillion dollars, of course, people have all sorts of ideas. Politicians have all sorts of ideas of what to do with it. Um, but I think the most one of the one of the important things to understand is if the idea of pricing carbon makes sense. If right, it does provide a decentralized solution. To, to get people to abate emissions when they can be done cheaply and to get people and firms to, to research um, new technologies that would allow you to do so in the future. Right? If, if, if you believe carbon pricing can really work to transition a market economy away from fossil fuels into a, a zero carbon future, then we don't need to use the money to, you know, the government doesn't necessarily need to spend that money on research itself, right? Or I guess, Often what I hear is like, oh, well, we can only pass a really low carbon tax, but if we put that money into research and development, we can maybe increase our efforts. My general perspective is I think you're asking for too low of a carbon tax. I think if you believe pricing can work, we should make the price you know, significant, $230 a ton, even more, if we want to really um, reach our, our, our climate goals. And I tend to think that, at least in the United States, which is where I understand the politics best, I think, um, that politically it's going to be important for that money to go back to individuals in the form of a carbon dividend and that the other monies that we need for, for government investment in technology should be raised you know, in, other, in other areas of the tax system. Great, thanks. Uh, by the way, you, you mentioned that um, the figure of $230 a ton was consistent with um, a temperature increase of 2.5 degrees over pre-industrial levels. Uh, the Paris Agreement um, commits to two, and if possible, less, but let's just take two. How much does the carbon tax need to increase um, over 230 to be consistent with a two-degree target on the same assumptions otherwise? Well, I think, I mean, I, I think those models get less and less certain. Um, so, I mean, we can crunch this stuff, and this is, this is not my area of expertise, but people... Um, like like Bill Nordhaus and so on can try to crunch these numbers at much higher prices and so on, um, but it gets really hard because we don't know. I mean, Europe right now kind of taxes fossil fuels at some point, two hundred thirty dollars per ton, which gives us some idea, you know, of well, you know, in the long run, if we did the same in the United States, in the very long run, you can imagine the U.S. getting to maybe European level carbon footprints and so on. But it gets much harder to think, yeah, what does it mean to tax carbon at $500 per ton or $1,000 per ton, you know, raise the, raise the price of gasoline from three bucks a gallon to 13 bucks a gallon. Well, it, 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 it gets challenging. So I think I use 230 bucks because it's an order of magnitude higher than most policy proposals in the United States today. But, but you're absolutely right. It is still, it is still inadequate, right? And I think it's important for people who are talking about pricing, who really want to do something about climate change, to be very clear about the sort of prices we're talking about and I'm open to the idea that $230 is too little, but right now most of the bait is just so, is looking at prices so much less than that that I think sure. we often miss, we miss the point. Absolutely. $40 is still something that turns up in policy papers, for instance. Uh, absolutely. So um, distributing um, $2,200 a year to uh, every uh, adult and child 
uh, in the U.S. sounds very like a universal basic income. Um, and in effect, it is, at least mechanically. Uh, is, is that how you would like to describe it? Or would you see this as being something different from um, ideas for a universal basic income? If so, what are the differences? And if this is a universal basic income, how do you respond to the very classic objections about disincentives to work and so on that are often um, uh, addressed to uh, UBI schemes? And the symmetrical uh, objection coming from the other side of the, of the political spectrum that de facto such schemes will simply uh, work to undercut wages. Uh, by subsidizing um, substandard employment and therefore end up taking away with one hand what's been given to um, working people with the other. So those are two very different, almost opposite objections, but both sure. of them are made in the political debate. How, how, how do you respond uh, to either or both? I think you're right. We can see a carbon dividend as a sort of universal basic income. I think the moral case for UBI is similar to the moral case for a carbon dividend. To some extent, we all have a right to the income we all generate together on this planet. Um, the objections that you note that the people have UBI, and I, I do hear these objections, it's going to um, disincentivize people to work or, or subsidize low wages. I don't see those as particularly compelling objections myself. I mean, um, a UBI disincentivizes work much less than most anti-poverty programs that, that impose sort of high implicit marginal tax rates on, on poor working class people in a bunch of countries. And while I think a UBI could to some degree subsidize low wages in a relatively competitive labor market, it, it shouldn't. Little of that should be captured by employers. So I think the most I think the, the strongest objection to both the UBI and a carbon dividend is actually that we're talking about huge amounts of money that the government could otherwise use for some other purpose. And it's not necessarily the case that the best thing for the government to do is to give it back to people in equal payments. That said, I mean, I am interested in both, both carbon dividends and, and universal basic income. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good bridge to um, what I wanted to say next, which is precisely that, um, you know, the old joke about not playing one club golf, which was uh, supposedly made by the former British Prime Minister Edward Heath about monetarism. Um, but two club golf, carbon dividend UBI is maybe not good enough either. Maybe we need a whole uh, full uh, bag of uh, golf clubs to play with. In which case, the question arises at both ends, and you've already pointed to both aspects of that question. Maybe we can go into it in a bit more detail. Um, if you are setting up any kind of UBI scheme for the basically citizenship-based reasons that you were referring to, recognizing common citizenship uh, through uh, an equal payment uh, that represents a non-trivial but not exclusive part of, uh, of uh, people's income, then there could be other sources. So carbon dividend could be one. Uh, designed to decrease over time as uh, the economy is decarbonated. And the immediate question could be, well, what other sources might make sense in something like the same normative structure? Other kinds of things that could produce a steady st stream of income uh, that could be redistributed in this way. And then the other side is the expenditure side, as, as you just said. Um, 
the uh, revenue raised could, instead of being distributed to people as purchasing power, be invested in things like education, for instance. Um, and there are obviously complicated arguments as to the benefits of spending on public goods or simply giving the public the money to spend themselves. So I realize that's a very complex, multidimensional question, so I'll let you pick uh, how you want to approach it. But looking at it both from the revenue side and from the ex expenditure side, what uh, what comments would you like to make on that? Yeah, well, I would start by just emphasizing that the carbon dividend is unlikely to, to provide for most of a UBI, right? So um, in the United States, Andrew Yang's freedom dividend uh, promising adults $1,000 a month, right? That would require, you know, almost $3 trillion in new revenue. It's almost as much as all federal tax revenues that we currently have, and about five times as much as we'd raise from a carbon tax of, of $230 per ton, um, which is already a much higher carbon tax than than most, than any um, serious proposals in the United States. Um, so the other thing to remember from a carbon dividend is that money is being raised in a somewhat regressive way. So even if you're in the poorest decile, so you're the people who are going to most benefit from a carbon dividend, the actual net dividend is only about two-thirds of, of the full dividend, right? Because one-third is just going to cover the extra costs you're going to have. And as you move up the income distribution, that get, you know, the, the net dividend gets smaller and smaller. So by the time you're talking about the middle quintile in the United States, most people are just, they're just coming out slightly ahead. So their real net dividend would be a tenth of of the, the the carbon dividend. So I think a carbon dividend is probably, at least on the order of magnitude I'm thinking about for a carbon price, is going to provide a small share of the funding that we need for a substantial UBI, um, you know, of, of say $12,000 a year, $1,000 a month per, per person or per adult. There's some, I tend to think that, at least in the United States, where children, um, and you know have, have much higher rates of poverty than adults that in the United States, I like the idea of including children in these sorts of payments because there is so much poverty um, among children in the United States. But if you if you open up to other possible you know funding uh, possibilities for the UBI, I think the real spirit of the UBI, you know it, it, I think it should be funded largely through progressive taxes. Um, not regressive taxes, right? Uh, through a progressive income tax or a tax on a, a higher tax on capital income or a wealth tax or um, a financial transactions tax could do part of that, right? But when you think about sort of the order of magnitude of the problem, Yang's UBI would require something like 15% of GDP um, to provide people with with that sort of support, $1,000 a month. Um, that's nearly half of capital share of all <laughs> in the economy, right? So my preference would be try to fund it from something like that, try to figure out how is it that we can, you know, um, tax those who earn high incomes based on what they own as opposed to what they do each day, right? Um, and increase, you know, our, our taxing of capital. That's something, of course, that we've been moving away from in the United States and much of the West for decades now. But I think that would be the the strongest sort of basis for for funding a UBI in in the global north. You didn't mention land, um, and the idea of a land tax as the basis for social justice is probably the oldest idea in in this area. 
going all the way back to Ricardo. Um, it, is it just that you you skipped it because you mentioned quite a few <laughs> other things, or is there any reason not to include it potentially at least, subject to political uh, feasibility and so on, in in the discussion package? Oh, absolutely. I think. I mean, I would see. In the United States, there are not a lot of um, prominent proposals to tax land, but absolutely that is one part of capital that's very easy to see that um, should be taxed for ethical reasons, right? That if we we own this planet in common, then having some people earn an enormous amount of of income off their ownership of the land is is somehow, it, it feels wrong. And so taxing something like that to provide everyone with some common shared ownership, I think, I think would be nice, but we are talking about you know if if we were gonna if we were going to fund a substantial UBI, we'd be talking about taking essentially half of the income that people earn off ownership of capital, ownership of land, and so on, and and putting that towards um, a UBI that benefits everybody. Not a trivial political issue, but that's uh, that we knew from the very beginning. Um, again, with a French lens, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you looked at this at the time, there was one candidate in 2017 who ran uh, on a, a platform that included, among other things, a, a UBI scheme, though probably at, at, uh, though at the time at the low subsistence level, so a sort of gesture towards a UBI scheme. Uh, Benoit Hamon, the candidate of the Socialist Party, and he received the lowest socialist share of the vote since 1969. Uh, not necessarily because of that particular policy proposal, but it certainly threw cold water on uh, enthusiasm among politicians for, for pitching this to the electorate. But maybe with um, the pandemic, its time has come. And that's something I wasn't planning to discuss, but I'd, I'd just like to ask for your views on this. Uh, one of the striking things in 2020 is how many governments, for purely pragmatic reasons, have actually improvised UBI schemes in various forms. Um, Even governments that would probably, on ideological grounds, have completely rejected the idea. Um, Does that perhaps create fertile soil uh, for for this debate to move forward? Well, currently in the United States, there's, of course, a huge political debate about whether or not to... We we did get one lump sum payment uh, back in April, May about whether or not to do that again. And, you know, it's not its not clear we're going to get another payment in the United States. But I know in many countries um, there have been there have been sort of a universal basic income during during COVID. And I think it makes an enormous, I mean, I think that's one of the best possible policies um, to adopt during COVID. And I think you're right. It has been popular with the American public and I think with the public of most countries of that have received these benefits, and it could absolutely boost support for UBI going forward. Um, I think, you know, the debate is really going to be about whether or not it is better to give give people cash than it is to give them other sorts of services. And so in the United States, there's just a very clear tension between, you know, if the government were to get another $3 trillion in in revenue, um, should that be given to everyone on an equal basis or... Or, or could we have things that, that other uh, social democracies take for granted, such as you know, free higher education, um, tax-funded health care, um, child care, <laughs> vacations, and so on? Um, I think there's a compelling case for a bunch of those social democratic goods as well as just cash in people's pockets. And that, 
I think ultimately that is a, a political decision. But I think you're right that that people responded positively to the payments they got during COVID, and those were really survival checks, and they helped people survive, and people understood that to survive in a market economy requires you to have cash, even if you can't go to work, right? And and UBI is one way of doing that. Yeah, and if, if, if all of this opens a space for the kind of discussion on the nature of a public good, uh, even though there might be different judgments about the relative balance between education, health, culture, direct income support, and so on, it's maybe precisely the right space within which you would want the debate to be taking place. And then there will be legitimate technical and ideological disagreements about it, and the balance will differ from country to country. Um, which leads me to, to another question. We've been talking um, in a rather North Atlantic way about the U.S. and about Europe, because you're an expert on the U.S. and I'm sitting here in Paris. But of course, particularly from a UNESCO perspective, the world is a lot bigger than that. And any discussion about carbon pricing, carbon taxation, basic income, or any of the other things we've been mentioning need at some level to work in South America, Africa, the Arab world, South Asia, and so on. I know this isn't your area of specialist expertise, but based on what you know of the literature of what other experts have been doing in this area, um, how feasible are these kinds of ideas in India, Nigeria, Brazil, or any of the other places where social justice is really at stake? Because it's a lot of people, uh, a lot of vulnerable people, um, and in, in systems that have often, in terms of social justice, been going backwards in recent years. Well, I think, so if we, if we focus on the carbon dividend for a moment, um, you know, in, 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 the, in the global north, a carbon tax is, is a relatively regressive tax. And much of the global south, a carbon tax can be somewhat progressive, or at least flatter and so on, um, making it, for distributional reasons, in some ways, a nicer, a nicer tax, right? It's a, it's a somewhat progressive tax that falls largely on well-to-do upper middle class and affluent people in these societies who do own, you know, lar large-ish homes and drive, drive automobiles and so on. And you could take that revenue and share it with the, the entire swath population, including many people who you know, don't own cars and maybe don't even really rely on fossil fuels, right? Still um, cook and so on, on um, <laughs> with, uh, with wood and, and, and other, other sort of natural fuels. Um, so on the one hand, I think the distributional aspects can work out well. On the other hand, I think pricing carbon dioxide emissions in developing countries is is challenging because on the one hand the global south right um needs a transition away from fossil fuels on the other hand it needs to provide people with access to to clean and safe energy and right we actually need to expand um access to energy in in the global south and so taxing it is is kind of it's kind of pushing against that so i think I think that's a real challenge with, you know, even the, just the carbon pricing idea is somewhat challenging, I think, in the global south. If you could do it, um, I think the distributional aspects would be somewhat more progressive than, than the global north. Um, from a UBI perspective also, I mean, any country, the more unequal the, uh, the country, the, I think in many ways, the stronger the case for a UBI, right? It means that the more unequal income is distributed or wealth is distributed, 
means that you can plausibly come up with a progressive tax to fund a universal income, and it's going to fundamentally change life for for the poor um, while not overburdening, you know, the well-to-do. Um, so I think there are, there are nice things about it, but of course there are competing interests. You know, in the global south, there's also an interest in having access to high-quality public goods um, provided directly by the government. And I think I think that's the fundamental question, right? In a country like the United States, a UBI has become it's really transformed the debate because it does bring together, you know, um, sort of lefty egalitarians with sort of libertarian types who think the role of government should be limited. And um, it's it's possible that we're going to be able to build up sort of a, a very broad coalition behind it. But of course, it, it is, in some sense, a, it's a kind of libertarian uh, solution to, to poverty and so on. And there are a bunch of other tested solutions to these problems as well that that I think we see most strongly in the social democracies of, of Europe. Yeah, that leads, of course, to the, the obvious question, very challenging one, both politically and technically. Um, for precisely the reasons you indicate, um, some kind of global redistributive approach might seem to make a lot of sense. It may not be politically feasible. It may be technically very challenging, but one could imagine, for instance, a an enhanced carbon tax in uh, rich countries with historically high contributions to um, emissions and a discounted tax in the global south with a compensation mechanism uh, to take the, uh, the, the add-on to cover the discount. Um, of course, there are global governance issues there that would be far beyond this discussion. I'm not saying this is feasible. From a purely normative perspective, um, do you see this as actually quite logical? It's the kind of argument that, that I think um, uh, Thomas Bocchi, for instance, has made very explicitly in, in, at the normative level in his arguments. He was focusing more on global public health goods like access to uh, healthcare, vaccines and treatments and so on. But it, I think it applies very naturally. And he said it himself in, in subsequent work to um, the question of environmental justice as well. And do you have any comments on that? And that, of course, is not a libertarian approach at all. <laughs> yeah, so we're getting further and further away from what's maybe politically feasible, but I mean, I agree that at a normative level, in the same way we are making a case for a carbon dividend on the basis of equal citizenship and so on, and a UBI is a basis, basis on the basis of equal citizenship in any given country, of course, at some level, we're actually all, I mean, and climate change points us out, we're all sharing this planet together, and it's not obvious that an American should receive a larger carbon dividend than um, a Nigerian, um, although a policy of a carbon dividend in every country would lead to exactly that result, right? That the Americans, since we do emit more and would continue to emit more per capita with a carbon price, um, it would fund a larger dividend in this country than what we get in, in say, Nigeria. Um, I think there's a strong normative case for saying, actually, the way to think about this is we should all be paying, say, the same carbon price worldwide but then everyone in the world should receive the same carbon dividend. Of course, under that policy, the vast majority of Americans would um, lose <laughs> purchasing power, and the vast majority of people in the global south would, would benefit, right? And I think there's a very strong normative case for it, but of course, there are, there are political constraints. Absolutely. And it, of course, for the avoidance of doubt, it is not a UN policy or anything of that <laughs> nature. Um, 
And indeed, you, you mentioned uh, energy poverty very correctly. It's a tension at the heart of the Sustainable Development Goals. Sustainable Development Goal 8 is about addressing energy poverty. And at the same time, there are environmental goals that seem to go against that objective. And it's for the international community, uh, obviously, to manage um, as best it can the fact that we have conflicting, competing objectives, uh, which, uh, which say different things many of them worrying about the state of our planet. Anyway, uh, th thank you very much for, for, for all of those comments. I'd like to move in closing to something that is superficially less exciting, uh, but actually very important for the work we do uh, in Inclusive uh, Policy Lab. And that is um, the question of knowledge and data. Um, you've referred uh, at a number of points in uh, your analysis of the situation in the U.S. and of the possible implications of um, carbon tax, carbon dividend to quite detailed data on household expenditure and so on and income distributions, uh, without which we wouldn't be able to calibrate any kind of policy uh, to, um, to suit it to any kind of um, policy goal. What do you see as the key gaps in this area, perhaps including in the U.S., the things where we would really need to know more in order to better calibrate policy responses in this area? And then we, we could perhaps move to gaps in other parts of the world that could be addressed by the kinds of programs maybe that um, UNESCO itself is responsible for with its partner organizations. In the United States, uh, there, there's growing sort of support for, for something like a carbon dividend, right? Over 3,000 economists, including conservatives and liberals, um, signed on to the Climate Leadership Council's sort of statement on carbon dividends. And there, there is some, so, so, so experts are sort of coming around to the idea. Um, I think it's, we, we have much less sort of understanding of how the American public or the global public would respond to the policy proposal. And increasingly, there's, there's some research in this area. So um, um, I, I, I am working on a paper where we essentially provide people, we ask people some questions about um, their income, their household size, and so on, and sort of do the calculation for them to give them the sense of what a carbon tax with or without a dividend um, would look for their household budget and ask them whether or not they support it. We and other authors are finding that indeed in that sort of situation, people are pretty open to um, carbon pricing, if, if, especially if they think they're going to, if they're told they're going to come out ahead, right? Um, but, you know, showing that does not necessarily mean that in the real world, in a, in a real political sort of dynamic, that we're going to be able to build sort of majority support. And so I think really a lot, a lot more knowledge and research is needed in sort of the political possibilities here, as opposed to just sort of, yeah, what <laughs> a lot of what we've been talking about is like, well, what makes sense economically or what do we need to do um, for justice purposes and so on. But of course, the, the big problem is like what what can actually get done? Um, what is politically possible? And that's that's outside my expertise to a large degree, but it is it is what we need to what we need to think about and what we need to be doing. That could suggest, and and I think many people would probably agree, but I'm just checking if it's if it's what you meant that advocacy in this area is has not always been as effective as it might. 
perhaps because it's uh, not be making the right arguments, not talking to the right people in the right way. Uh, do you think there is scope for better advocacy in order to create the conditions for political change or policy change in this area? And if so, what, what should people who basically share the normative vision that you've um, developed in this podcast, how should they be communicating it to people to share it? If, any comments on that? I mean, I think I would stress that addressing climate change is going to require us to fundamentally change our way of life, right? We're going to have to get rid of internal combustion engines. We're going to have to electrify homes. We're going to have to, we're going to have to really change what we're doing. And sometimes, especially I think from economists and sort of wonky types, we're imagining like climate policy that, that could we pass something that like the people won't notice and like that's not possible <laughs> like we we can't address this problem without people noticing it it's going to change their life and so the questions are how can we change people's lives in a way that's sort of politically tractable um i think that carbon pricing is sort of a central a central part of how we do that in the market economy i mean fundamentally mispricing fossil fuels when so many of our decisions are based on the prices we face. Right? My decision about whether or not to insulate my attic in this old house depends to a large degree how much it costs me to heat and cool the place. Um, I think it's hard for me to imagine fixing my attic without pricing being part of that solution. That said, some activists and experts are starting to question whether or not carbon pricing is even the right way to go forward. Right? We see that with um, renewed interest in a Green New Deal in the United States and worldwide, globally, right? And I think what has been powerful about the sort of the, the thinking and activism around a Green New Deal is they are hyper-focused on what the actual goal is, and they do not deny that it's going to transform our lives and so on. I think being honest about that is key. And so I get frustrated when Green New Deal types reject carbon pricing, saying that it can't work, it never does anything, look at all these places that price carbon. And I think, well, yeah, but the carbon price is an order of magnitude too low. You know, maybe it might work at the sort of prices we need. Um, I, get I get frustrated with that, but I'm also sometimes frustrated with economist types who are hyper-focused on sort of <laughs> the demand curves and marginal abatement curves that convince them that carbon pricing is the only sensible way to address climate when in fact it's a policy that, that wonks have been pushing for decades with relatively limited success, especially, especially in the United States. So I think we wanna be open to a broad range of possibilities. And I think the sort of inherent tensions that exist, um, for example, you noted in the global South between on the one hand expanding um, or, or addressing energy poverty and addressing carbon emissions. I mean, that's a tension, it doesn't matter what your policy is, that's a tension that's going to exist regardless of whether or not you do this with market-based policy or with state investment or with new regulations and so on. That's a tension that we can't get around. And we see the same fundamentally in, in the United States. The distributional aspects of the problem are immense. And it doesn't matter whether or not we regulate ourselves to a, um, a zero carbon economy or whether or not we rely overwhelmingly on government investments or whether or not we price carbon. Um, the distributional impacts are going to be immense, and there's no way to get around that. It's, um, I, I agree totally. It, it's interesting that I don't think the word jobs came up uh, in this podcast. And of course, one of the differences between the kind of New Deal approaches, not referring to any particular policy, 
uh, it's not for me to comment on national policies in that way, but there are there are variants all around the world, um, and uh, approaches which are more about uh, uh, taxation and carbon pricing is that uh, the New Deal is trying to speak to people as workers in the broad sense, uh, trying to talk about how a transition can create jobs, because inevitably jobs will be destroyed. But jobs are destroyed anyway, so that's not necessarily a problem. But you have to point at the capacity to create new jobs, particularly in uh, in uh, renewable energy and related sectors and so on. And the, the building trade, renovating buildings, you're referring to insulating attics, renovating buildings is potentially a huge source of uh, new jobs, including skilled jobs that could be very valuable to uh, underwrite such a transition. So I'm I'm improvising here and giving my own view to some extent, but the impression the discussion gives is, is that there's a kind of triangle where people can be addressed as consumers, as citizens, and as workers, In the broad, again, in a very broad sense, not necessarily employees, many might be self-employed, but as workers. And one of the challenges is to make sure that when you talk to them in one capacity, it's not clashing with how you talk to them in the other. In other words, the trick, if feasible, would be to align the citizen perspective, the consumer perspective, and the worker perspective. And that's something that's certainly seen from the countries I know best in Western Europe, doesn't seem to have been achieved so far. So you constantly end up with this trade-off. Yeah, as a consumer, I might benefit, but it's going to kill jobs. As a citizen, I might benefit, but it's going to destroy the economy, and so on. Um, or maybe those trade-offs are just so deep that there's actually no way of reconciling in one language that would speak at the same level to citizens, consumers, and workers. Again, I realize that's far too big a question to answer, but maybe you have some comments on it. I think that's a really interesting way of framing the problem. And I think, you know, you can see a carbon dividend as a solution to the consumer problem. We recognize that pricing carbon is going to increase costs for people, and the carbon dividend is one way to make sure that those costs don't... Um, don't impoverish people who are already struggling in, in these countries. Um, and I think that's part of the reason, you know, the excitement around Green New Deal is absolutely sort of recognizing that some jobs are going to be eliminated and that we're going to need huge amounts of other jobs and so on. And that maybe instead of relying on the magic of the market to, to do it, it's useful for the state to come in and say, okay, well, um, West Virginia is going to be harmed by the transition away from fossil fuels and coal. And so let's use the government to ensure that there's huge investments in, say, wind energy in West Virginia to provide people with jobs where they currently live and so on. And I think pairing those two things together makes sense. Um, and I think that can be done. You know, most of uh, the calculations that I've been, I've been sharing have sort of been assuming, actually, that the entire burden of a carbon tax falls upon consumers. So in some ways, these have been very sort of conservative estimates about the number of people, for example, who would be better off under the policy, um, the, net, the net benefit for, for people and so on. If, in fact, we're not in that mo perfectly competitive sort of model, right, um, and there are going to be some concentrated losses in certain industries, which is, of course, the case, then, then a Green New, Deal, Green New Deal type policies, I think, could help address that. And I think providing... A Green New Deal, probably we do need to provide people with a guarantee as workers that if your job is eliminated due to our transition away from fossil fuels, we will help move you into another, you know, a similarly paying job to, 
to join us in the fight to save the planet. Great. Anders, it's been great talking to you. I think there's still uh, an awful lot to be discussed below what we scratch, but I, I think we had a really great discussion. I was impressed by the, the clarity of everything you had to say, and I hope uh, you enjoyed it too. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, John. It's been, it's been fun, and I learned a lot. Thank you very much. Anders Fremstad, guest on UNESCO's Inclusive Policy Lab podcast series. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Thank you.